Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to the In Conversation With series, a series where I speak to notable figures in the realm of financial services. Listen as they share their personal journeys, thoughts on the industry, and advice for aspiring advisors. Hello and welcome to In Conversation With. I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and today I'm joined by Steve Windsor, co-founder and principal of Atrato Group. So um, Steve, if you could give us a background on you and how you got started in financial services. Yeah, sure. And hello, Kimberly, and thanks, thanks for having me. So um, I started way back when, I guess, late 90s um, in the world of banking um, and uh, originally actually on the trading floor, but worked my way through most roles within banking over the course of the next 20 years and ended up um, at Goldman Sachs with my co-founder by Ben Green. And we worked there together for a long time. I was at Goldman for a total of 16 years. Um, and we spent a lot of time mostly on the advisory side, you know, talking to clients about transactions. We said for a long time, you know, wouldn't it fun to be more on the principal side and investing money on behalf of ourselves and other people um, and mm -hmm. principling some of those transactions rather than advising around them. Um, so it took us a few years to pluck up the courage um, to leave and start up Petrato, but we finally did in 2017. And the idea was that we you know, wanted to set up our own asset management company, very much focused on the alternative space and very much focused mm -hmm. on the kind of asset-backed or real asset space, trying to find value propositions um, for our investors um, into invest into those sectors. Okay. Um, so you've touched on it a little bit, but what makes Atrato different? Um, I, I think our own backgrounds um, have focused very much about where can you find a true kind of structural value proposition across asset mm -hmm. classes. So we're fairly agnostic. You know, we have a property fund, a supermarket income REIT. We have a renewable energy fund in Roof. You know, We have a social housing business. You know, we look at lots of different asset classes, but what we're really looking for fundamentally is, is there a value proposition here? And it could be, and certainly often is in the case of property markets, that the property market prices this risk or the embedded risk in whatever you're investing in a bit differently to how maybe a bond market or a fixed income market would, would price it. And supermarket income REITs is the classic example of that. So you can go and buy bonds today from Tesco's and you know, they might yield you five, five and a half percent in today's market, which is actually really attractive historically. But that's mm -hmm. still five percent from a Tesco's and that's for an unsecured credit claim against Tesco's. If you face Tesco in a lease, which is essentially what we do as a property investor, you have a secured credit claim because the security is the property. The lease is pari passi with the bonds, yet you can get paid, you know, more than that six. You know, the actual IRR of super brain is more like nine percent running um, because of the inflation aspect too. So you get paid an awful lot for taking a very similar um, risk um, that you would do in the bond markets if you do it via super and property markets rather than doing bonds. And that's the sort of structural, I guess, um, uh, proposition or the structural investment opportunity that we're always looking for. And so that's kind of our USP and what we look for, kind of finding those value-add investment opportunities for clients across asset classes that are not necessarily uh, obvious, but when you start to peel the layer of the onion, you find them, and then investing for those for the very long term. And so we are you know, very much a long-term investor. Most of our investment horizons will be 15, 20 years, um, um, but we also like to have that underpinning of some security in what we're doing. And that could be property, it could be solar panels, but you know, it's very unlikely in our funds you'll lose all of your money in your investment mm -hmm. because you always have hard asset or real asset backing. 
Okay. So, and you specialize in real assets and long income, as you've just said. Um, so obviously right now we're, I guess we're at a time of high volatility. Um, so why is that, you know, why is that important right now? What you, your strategy is, why is that kind of the right strategy at this time period? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'll give you a, a kind of a, a dramatic statement, which I, I genuinely believe in. I think it, this, you know, this could be a once in a generational investment opportunity within the real asset space. Now, the mm. yields on offer or the returns on offer right now are returns that we haven't seen at kind of almost any time in our living memory. The returns on offer right now in some of our investment classes are better than they were in 2008. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly better that you get the you know, previous crisis in 98 or even going back to 94. So it's a, it is an incredible opportunity. Now, it could be that it's going to get even better in terms of investment opportunity because we're going to get more dislocation and you know the current banking crisis will will, will roll Lehman's-esque into, into a broader um, financial crisis. Mm. But right now, the actual returns on the table uh, are incredibly compelling, and returns um, are so good that we, you know, we generally haven't seen them this good before. So, it's a fantastic time to be investing in this asset class. Now, the counter to that is it's not a great time to be invested because if you bought stuff in the last five years, it's just got a lot cheaper. Um, but if you have strong balance sheets in your businesses and you have the ability um, to, um, to I guess, trade this market from a position of strength, there's an incredible value opportunity or an incredible investment opportunity on the table. So you, know, you are supposed to be investing in these turbulent times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I guess a lot of people would probably want to keep play safe but i i think looking at it in the long term is probably the best thing ultimately and there's going to be high demand um to try and find something especially something that is on the cheaper side yeah and i think i think you can still play safe like in turbulent times and turbulent periods in the market you should look for safe havens or you know certain sectors or asset classes that should weather the storm better than others um and i think you know again if you look at our supermarket income REIT portfolio you know we really like that from a safe haven perspective because you're ultimately in grocery, right? The underlying sector is grocery. That's anti-cyclical, as in people spend more in the supermarket in times of recession than they do in buoyant times. Well, why is that? Because in recession, money is tight. You know, cost of living crisis in the UK is a big example of that. What do people do? Well, they stop their discretionary spend. So they take less mm -hmm. taxis, they eat out less, they go to the theatre or cinema less. And what do they do? Well, that means they're at home more. So they need to eat more at home. So they spend more in the supermarket. So, you, so you're in a very non-discretionary spend sector that will perform well. Now, still, you know, the share prices of Tesco's and Sainsbury's have gone down, not up in this in this mm -hmm. current time but actually the underlying businesses are stronger than ever because people are spending more in supermarkets so you're in a sector that you know will survive whether mm -hmm. you pick the right time exactly to invest in that sector over the next 12 months who knows but you should take comfort that you're investing in a sector that will survive the storm and if you can get the returns current on the table when you come out the other side and the sector turns you'll be very pleased with yourself that you did invest because those returns won't be on the table for very long or at least history tells us they won't yeah well, when you say it like that, it sounds very logical. And it's like, I don't know why I never thought of it. Of course, I, I find myself staying at home a lot more, but also popping off, popping out to my local Tesco or actually Lidl because they're just around the corner. But yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how has financial services changed since you started in the industry? You said that you started in the 90s. So um, that's a couple 
three decades. Um, so I, I'm just, I, I am, I'm a nineties baby, so don't worry about that. I'm sharing my age as well, but what changes have you seen? You would have observed quite a lot, I can imagine. Yeah, I think, I think the industry's changed a lot and I'd say nearly all for the better. Um, I think, you know, if you if you look at what's happened over three decades, making me feel really old now. But yeah, the nineties and nineties, so and and uh, at least in the last kind of post Lehman decade, um, uh, I think you know the kind of responsible investing has become much stronger, and that's a theme that we generally believe in at Atrato, and, and we think it's a virtuous circle. We think if 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 we can position all our funds so they they do do well from a sustainability perspective and they are set up well from a kind of whole ESG perspective from the get-go, that's a more attractive mm-hmm. fund for investors to invest in, will actually attract more money into them. And, you know, we all genuinely believe we're doing the right thing. So we all sleep better at night and, you know, the fund does better as a result. So I think that whole thematic is huge and has much, much further to run. And I think we were quite fortunate in that because we only set up a charter in 2017 and it's five years ago now, but still relatively new in, in the setting up of a financial institutions world. Um, we could kind of set up a new blueprint from the get-go as to what we wanted to achieve on the sustainability and ESG front, and particularly mm-hmm. around the charitable giving piece. Um, mm-hmm. We took some lessons learned from Goldman Sachs. One of the bits I really liked at Goldman Sachs was the whole GS Gives program and how that works. So Goldman is a percentage of your um, if your salary or the total compensation each year that you get as a partner of Goldman goes directly into a charitable pot. And that's called GS Gives. Mm. And that's actually ends up being quite a lot of money with all the partners worldwide contributing. And then you get to allocate that um, to charities that you believe in or good causes that you believe in. Um, and that forces you to think very strategically about your giving um, um, whilst at Goldman. And we thought, well, how do we replicate that when we set up our own business? Could we really like that? You know, forcing you to think strategically about charitable giving aspect. So we've aligned ourselves with several charities since we've been here. And um, we're we set up the Atrato Foundation. So we have a separate, I guess, unit, but part of the broader group of the charter companies, which is just focused on the charitable giving side. Um, mm-hmm. And that is in the process of getting charitable status itself. It should be imminent now. But the idea over time is that all of our funds contribute a percentage of profits into our foundation. And then each of the funds get to decide how that money is spent, but we can then have good governance around that charitable giving, long-term plans around that charitable giving, and form long-term strategic relationships with the charities that we want to work with. Um, so they're charities like um, Inter University, um, which is a, a fantastic charity that it kind of does what it says in the tin, but it helps kids from usually underprivileged areas get places at university. It puts learning local learning centres into those underprivileged areas across the UK, extra mm-hmm. academic support, after-school homework support, you know, aspirational type stuff to to try and help those kids get into university. So that, you know, they take a very long approach, long-term approach to um, to their um, uh, uh, actual uh, charitable impact because they have to work with kids from kind of age six, seven, eight, or work to age eighteen, um, and then that makes a good long-term uh, alignment for a business like ours. Um, but each of the various funds that we run has slightly different um, approaches. So supermarket income reap being focused on the grocery sector there, most of that charitable um, focuses around food and food poverty. So work closely with Fair Share, Trust for Trust and, and donate to them uh, and their causes to help try and you know, alleviate some of the food poverty in the, in the UK. 
if you look at Roof, um, and Roof was the first of our funds to actually have in the prospectus that it will commit at least 1% of profit every year to uh, to charitable causes. That 1% then goes into the Charter Foundation with governance both from the company board and the Charter Foundation board as to how that money is spent. Um, and you may or may not have seen, but at the time, um, VIPO, um, Roof was the first company ever to list on the London Stock Exchange 100 and something year history with an all-female board. Mm-hmm. So we were very much taken on the whole gender equality um, um, thematic, and particularly we're getting more females into STEM subjects at an early age. Um, mm. And that comes around the inspiration part where you inspire them that, you know, maths or science can be more interesting than you think. And then it comes, you know, really around the aspiration part where, you know, helping them aspire to go and study that at, on at universities. And then it comes to the more pragmatic bit about actually providing financial help um, for people to go through that. And then ultimately, which is, I think, probably what excites the team the most, it's also about, well, then we'll be spitting out some brilliant female, hopefully engineers to go and to come and then uh, help us develop, you know, UK solar and maybe even work with us at Atrato, um, because we always need more smart engineers within our solar business here. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're trying to align, you know, the underlying funds objectives with the charitable objectives of that fund and then have a separate dedicated foundation here within a charter to enable us to do that. And that gives us, you know, from the outside world, anybody looking in, fantastic, um, um, I guess, um, point scoring in terms of sustainability, but it also is a, yeah. you know, a great thing for everyone here at Charter to be involved with and the boards of the companies. So we benefit from it too. It generally is a win-win. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like the idea that, you know, doing charity work is not just, a, I don't know, like seen as a, like a tax write-off or something like that, right? You're actually doing something that will fundamentally benefit yourselves but also society as a whole um and is actually actively making that change and i think that is a very um uh like very good thing that you're doing over there um so you worked you have a background working in goldman sachs so what is what are the pros and cons you know what you, you learn what you learned in your past and what you've done now setting up a boutique you know what are the pros and cons of working for both you know a multinational and a boutique what what would you say yeah no i love my time at goldman sachs it was an amazing training training ground you get to see you know international business on a grand scale um yeah i think when we we left to set up our boutique and I think we'll still be classed as boutique for some time, even as we grow, we'll never, we'll never even aspire to grow to the kind of mighty stages of a large international financial institution such as a, a Goldman. But I think what you can do is you can you can set up your own culture. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in a very large institution, doesn't matter which one it is, you know, there's always bits of the culture you like and bits of the culture you don't like probably people you like and people you don't like as well. When you're in a large organization, you just have to get on with it uh, uh, and uh, and go with the flow. When you set up your own company, you get to start from a blank sheet, sheet of paper and say, well, you know, what is the culture we want to have here? How do we define that? How do we make sure that we're living and breathing that culture and that, and that we hire people um, that we like? You know, we have a kind of a, a guy's joke with me here that I'm always on about likability, like because you're going to work with those people, you know, long hours, we're in the financial sector, mm-hmm. we work hard and long hours and people work evenings and weekends and sometimes all nighters. You have to like these people. And so you have to, mm-hmm. you know, you spend more time with your work colleagues probably than you are with your family or friends. So let's make sure we hire people that we think are, are fun and interesting and you, know, you, you 
want to go for a beer with or go and play sport with um, uh, on the weekends as well as working in the week. So we've tried to do that um, and by hiring, you know, in some ways like-minded people or people who are then open and, and we think relatively uh, relaxed um, approach um, to life and, and business, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe slightly different to the to the Goldman Sachs world, um, which you certainly couldn't uh, describe as being, you know, uh, relaxed. Late that was back. always slightly more stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see, I can see that. Um, but I can imagine starting up would have been quite difficult uh, when you were starting kind of moving from having that support of working at a multinational and setting up by yourself. Was that something that you found particularly difficult or had you learned enough that you were comfortable? Um, I think We'd learned enough that, that we were confident that we could do it. And there's you no, know, we had some lessons to learn along the way. But you no, know, certainly when we started out and we were borrowing office space, and there were the kind of three of us sat in the office and you know, your laptop didn't work. And you, who do I phone? And actually, it's just me. And uh, you mm-hmm. kind of try and sort it out between yourself and with you know, various help chats on on Google. Um, yeah, you don't you don't have that same support network in place. So the onus is you do everything. So you are literally you know, under the desk trying to sort out your computer and organizing your own travel and diaries and you know, all those other bits in a large organization you kind of get taken away from you um but mm. i think if i look back on our journey over the last five years you know, that initial period where we were fixing our own pcs and and uh, and running our own diaries and general the chaos that went along with all that was probably the most fun bit as well right mm-hmm. it's quite entrepreneurial it is quite good fun yeah. um you know you're learning by doing the whole time um and so, yeah, I definitely you know, wouldn't shy away from that. And advising friends who are always saying, "Should we go and start up our own business, or should we go and take the same similar job at another large institution?" I always say, "No, no, it's it's really good fun starting your own business, and you know, it'll mm-hmm. be an emotional roller coaster because you know, some things will go well and some things will go badly, but it's a tremendous learning experience. And with a bit of luck and some real proper hard work, it usually works. It's definitely worth it." Okay. Well, I think that's some um, good advice for people who might be thinking of uh, going into business for themselves. Um, I'm, I think I'm a little bit too scared to do it myself right now, but maybe something to look forward to in the future. Um, so finally, I guess um, I wanted to know if you had any um opinions or um, maybe some guidance for what the landscape might look like in terms of investments throughout 2023. You know, um, there's been quite a few shakeups, not as not as um, badly as it was, you know, towards the end of last year, but there have already been like three big banks, you know, um, that have needed buyouts and help so what do you think the landscape might look like for the rest of this year yes yeah, so as we're speaking you know we lost csfb over the last weekend which is quite incredible when you think about it and that is another lehman's type moment now i think you know, the banking sector is much more prepared for it ever than it ever was in 2008 and that won't be such a large impact but we're seeing lots of these events and when you rise raise interest rates as quickly as they've raised interest rates uh, the true impact has not truly been felt across the globe yet. Um, so mm-hmm. there's this constant battle between trying to control inflation and slow the inflationary side of the economy without actually killing the economy. Uh, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, there is a risk factor in there that they don't get it right, um, and it can get a lot worse. So I think you'll you'll have a 
prolonged period, maybe not longer than a year, but most of 2023 to invest. Um, there'll be, you know, it, it will not be a straight line. There'll be a series of, oh my God, the world's going to end market moves. And actually it's okay market moves as we kind of ebb and flow between between whatever sentiment is, depending on you know what bank has gone bust or other companies are in trouble, which there will be lots over the course of the next 12 months. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, as a big picture, long-term investor, you have to view this as an investing opportunity. So, you know, where where is stuff mispriced? You know, where where in a normalized cycle would you be able to make a lot of money by investing in something today? You know, as we said before, you know, we really like the real asset space because of this. And if you've got infrastructure type assets, and we would view you know, supermarket property as, as really food infrastructure here in the UK, really mm-hmm. stable property assets. Now, you know, property is going to have a tough time because interest rates are high and no one likes property at this stage of the cycle, but it means property is really cheap. So this is when you want to be buying it, not at the top of the cycle when everybody's buying it. Um, right. I think in the renewables energy space, that that whole renewable sector has weathered the storm quite well and probably will continue mm-hmm. to do so because the investment thematics around renewable energies are really strong. You've got a doubling of demand predicted for electricity over the course of the next few decades and here in the UK as we all electrify everything from transport um, through to heating and you have our creaking electricity generation utility um, network here in the UK which can't cope. So we're going to have to add a lot more renewable energy to that. So if you can invest in that, that's great. And the investment returns on in the renewable energy sector, and particularly the stuff we're looking at in terms of um, uh, uh, direct corporate um, solar, either rooftop or ground, um, then you know we are getting an eight percent IRR off that business right now. And no, only mm-hmm. twenty four months ago that was considered a four to five percent IRR business. So there's kind of a double on that one. And again, in a normalized world in a year to two years' time, no one will believe that you could actually manage to buy, you know, electricity infrastructure in the UK at eight percent IRRs. It truly is um, and that's unlevered. That truly is incredible. So I think you've got to look for for you know where the relative safe havens are. We talked about grocery, we talked about solar energy, but there are there are other examples of safe haven investing. And then find within that, you know, a way to put money to work for the long term that you feel safe about. Um, and you can sit there for the long term because your March markets may get worse before they get better. You know, it's what happens mm-hmm. as things ebb and flow over the next 12 months. But I'd be pretty certain on a five-year horizon almost nobody will regret investing in you know asset backed or real asset investment strategies um with you know high returns even in the case of 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 failure um with when they look back in 5 years time because i think you know this is a, this is a great great opportunity to be investing in the market okay well I like that. I, I like to have a, more of a positive spin uh, rather than the possible doom and gloom. So I will look forward to that um, more than the other uh, argument that people might have. But thank you so much for speaking with me today, Steve. Absolute pleasure. Nice to meet you, Kimberly. And thank you for taking the time to have a chat. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.